Well, have you had a happy day? Not through today, but you've had that happy day that that hymn spoke about. I did look around and some faces weren't showing it then, but I guess you were feeling the happiness inside. Well, my happy day was when I was 16. I was brought up in Barry, that famous town just down the road. And uh, like these young people up here, I started going back into church in my teens. And uh, when I was 16, I came to faith in a small outreach work on the Colcott Estates. And at, uh, on a Sunday evenings after the evening service, uh, the pastor of the church was very brave. He'd have all the young people back to his house. And uh, I say he was brave. There must be about 30 of us in his front room. It was only a small front room. And he had a pattern there. He'd say, does anybody have a word of testimony? And uh, Ken Peel was his name, and uh, that was his regular pattern. And if you'd come to faith, if you'd had a happy day, you were expected to give your testimony on a Sunday night. And uh, a couple of weeks after I came to faith, I realized I was a sinner who needed to be saved. I went along to that Sunday evening and plucked up my courage and gave a very bumbling testimony. How would you explain how you become a Christian if you're new to these things? But I was able to testify to my faith. Then I came to understand the next thing I should do would be baptised. And in that church, there was no uh, alternative. You had to give your testimony in front of the whole church. These days, we're a bit soft, aren't we? Give people a choice sometimes. Well, not then. No, that's the way we had to be. But you know, he was right. Because it's an important place of giving a testimony, of making a verbal confession of faith. The Bible talks about that. Uh, Paul, when he writes to the Romans in chapter 10, verse 9, he says, if you confess with your mouth the, the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Then he explains why he said that. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Now he's not talking about alternatives there. He's saying it's both confession with the mouth and believing in the heart. The two go together. If you believe in your heart, your mouth should give the testimony of what the Lord has done in your life. It's what Jesus expected of the disciples. But remember, in the ministry of Jesus, uh, he was going along the road with them, and he asked them what seemed to be an easy question. He turned to them and said, Who do men say that I am? Well, that's an easy question. They they could simply report what they'd heard. Uh, John the Baptist, they they said, uh, but some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. But then he asked a very personal question. But who do you say that I am? What's your confession? What's your testimony about these things? And Peter, most probably on behalf of all of the disciples, made that great confession. You are the Christ. Peter was unashamed to make his great profession of faith at this point. So I want to think tonight about this whole area, about what it means to make a profession of faith or to confess our faith with our mouths. Uh, There's many examples we could give, but one of the lovely examples, I think, in Scripture is found in that reading we had in the book of Ruth. And it's found in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 of Ruth, where she makes her great confession of faith. Now, as we turn to this, I 
I want to say, first of all, that it's remarkable that Ruth had a confession to make. You see, you, you read the story, didn't you, that uh, how um, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, had, because God was chastising his people rather than submitting to the chastisements of the Lord, they'd, they'd disobeyed God's word, they'd gone down to Moab, they'd had tragedy after tragedy down there, and uh, it, with the result that both uh, Naomi's husband, then her two sons died, and she was left with her two daughters-in-laws. They were not God's people, they were from Moab. They were descendants of Lot, but they were a cursed people for the way they treated God's people. Uh, but these, because of disobedience to the family, they'd married into some of God's family, and Ruth and Orpah were now left with Naomi. And we picked up the story where Naomi was going to go back into uh, Judah, back to Bethlehem, because she'd heard the famine had ended, the Lord had visited them, and she was going to go back. And we have this remarkable story where one of her daughter-in-laws goes with her and one stays behind. Have you ever thought of asking the question, why did one go and one stay? You know, there was no logical reason why Ruth should go back. You see, um, what, we, what we read here is this, that Naomi was a very poor witness for the Lord. Naomi, rather than realizing she was under the chastisement of God, she simply put aside God's word. God had laid down some boundaries, as he does for us today, within which we should move. One of the boundaries was they should not move to Moab, not should not make any alliances with Moab. But she said, well, the logical thing is there's food there. So she and her husband broke God's word and went down to Moab so they could find food. When they were there, they were told not to intermarry with the nations, but they did. And so uh, Naomi was anything but a good witness for the Lord. She was saying, well, you can live as you want. You can set aside the direction of God's word. And as a consequence, rather than seeing blessing, she was experiencing an even greater sense of God's chastisement upon her and her family. You could even say this. She was a very discouraging witness. She was somebody who was putting others off from coming to know the true and the living gods. You see, we read this in verse 10. The daughters-in-law say to her, well, we're going to come back with you. Now, uh, if somebody said to you tonight, uh, we're going to come to the heath with you tonight, would you have said, oh, you don't want to go there? There are a funny bunch of people at the heath, and you have to listen to a long sermon, you really don't want to go there. Well, in a sense, this is what Naomi was doing. We're going to come back with you, but, they, but Naomi said, oh, no. No, no, no. You stay where you are. Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? And she gives them every reason why they shouldn't go. She says in verse 13, It grieves me very much for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. She's saying, God is against me at this point. And if you come back with me, you'll experience the same things I'm experiencing. No, 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 no. You really shouldn't come back with me. In fact, when you look at her counsel, she said this, Your greatest need, my daughters-in-law, is to find a husband. Now she put finding a husband above finding the true and the living God. Go back, she says, to to, to your own people. When Orpah turns around and she goes back, uh, Naomi encourages Ruth to do the same thing. Look, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. 
How Ruth ever came to faith is hard to understand. Because the only witness to the true and living God was actually discouraging her from going back. In fact, we could say this, that Naomi was a poor witness because she was a bitter witness. She was a bitter believer. The psalmist in Psalm 66 has this great encouraging thing to say. Come and hear, all you who fear God, and I will declare what he has done for my soul. Isn't that a great encouragement to Christians? Encourage us to speak up, doesn't it? To say, yes, I've got a testimony, and I can tell you what God has done for my soul. I could have gone in all sorts of directions and had God not spoken to me when I was 16 and arrested me in my, in, in my slide and brought me to faith and stayed with me for 55 years since then. That's my testimony. I can tell you what great things the Lord has done. But what does Naomi do? When she gets back to Bethlehem, there's excitement there. Oh, Naomi's come back. She's been away from 10 years. We need to catch up with her news and find out what's been going on. Let's welcome her back. You can imagine they're almost having a, a party to welcome Naomi back. But what does she say? Well, look at verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Here's a bitter believer. Why, she says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Actually, her dealings were because of her own sylphiness and refusal to to submit to God's will and purposes, to hear his voice speaking to her. But she said, no, I feel bitter about these things. I went out full, and the Lord has brought me home again empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has inflicted me? You see, there's no reason why Ruth should come to faith. But the encouraging thing is this, she did. You know, isn't that encouraging? that the Lord saves the most unlikely people. When I was about 12 and in Sunday school, my Sunday school teacher went to the pastor and said, I've got to give up. I can't cope with that Colin Berg anymore. And the pastor said, don't give up, just pray. Isn't that what we need to do? If the Lord can save Ruth, he can save anyone. You see, Ruth's testimony is this, that salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is entirely of grace. There was nothing that would, would say, this is the reason why Ruth should come to faith. Everything was against that. But she came to believe. And that just shows, doesn't it, the wonders of God's grace. God set his love upon her. God fixed her choice on that day. And this was Ruth's happy day. And you know the good news is this, you might be in a similar situation today. You might be saying, well, of course, uh, there's no hope for me. I, I've led a very difficult life. I've got into all sorts of things. And how could I ever become a Christian? Listen, if Ruth had become a Christian, so can you. Because it's all of grace. And so Ruth experiences God's grace. And now she wants to tell people. She wants to make a profession of her faith. And that leads us up then to this great profession of faith in verse 16. What's she saying? Well, first of all, she tells us about the focus of her faith. When she says, your people should be my people and your God my God, what Ruth is saying is, I, I've now moved from being a child of Moab and the worship of the God Chemosh 
I have now moved to be being part of the covenant people of God. You see, the way in which the Old Testament covenant was often expressed was like this. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. And Ruth mirrors this in her profession of faith. She takes the words of the covenant and she applies them to herself. She says, now your people will be my people, and your God, my God. Now there's two important things there I want us to notice about that, that, uh, that, that focus of her faith. First of all, she's come to a personal commitment to the living God. A book I found very helpful in recent days was a book that Ray Evans wrote called Ready, Steady, Grow. And uh, very helpful in his book, he talks about in the days in which we live, often conversions for adults take some time. And he talks about maybe 10 years from the first time somebody hears the gospel to when they come to faith. Now, of course, that's not a rule. Often people come to faith immediately, but generally it's a long journey. And he encourages us to think about that journey. And if you like, this Ruth has been on this journey. She started off with false gods. She didn't believe in the true and living God. She might have started off, if you like, as somebody who in today's language was an atheist. There is no God. Lived a life without the true and the living God. But then she moves along to understand that uh, maybe there is a God. And from denying, she starts doubting. And then she comes to the point where she says, yes, I believe in God. I believe in the God of, of, of uh, Israel. I believe in the God of Naomi and uh, Elimelech and uh, God's people there in the promised land. I believe in God. But now she's gone one step further. Because what does she say? Your God should be my God. She's made that final step of making that personal commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. She's come to faith. I know Christ hasn't come now. She's looking ahead to the promise of the Redeemer. And through that, she's come to that point of coming to a personal faith. She's, uh, she's had that change of heart. Now, you know, that's something we find uh, throughout the Scriptures to talk about that important point, that happy day point, when we have that personal experience of the true and the living God. Uh, the psalmist, uh, the most famous psalm in the Bible, the Lord is my shepherd. Now, the psalmist could have said, the Lord is our shepherd. Because that's true, isn't it? If we're a Christian tonight, we could say, oh yes, the Lord is our shepherd. He uh, cares for us all. He feeds us all. He directs us all. He protects us all. But no, the psalmist says, there's a greater truth than that. The Lord is my shepherd. There's a personal relationship that's being established there. In the uh, life of the disciples, after the resurrection, you might remember that time when the Lord Jesus Christ uh, appeared to the disciples in the upper room. And uh, one of them was absent. Uh, Thomas wasn't there. And they, uh, they see Jesus. They believe in him. They accept the reality of the resurrection. And they excitedly tell Thomas all about it. And Thomas says, well, you know, uh, I can't believe that. Unless I put my finger in the nail print in his hand, unless I thrust my hand into his wounded side, I'm not going to believe. And then the following Lord's Day, they're in the same room, and Thomas is there, and uh, Jesus comes into the room. And what's Thomas's confession? He looks at Jesus and he says, My Lord and my God. 
What's happened is come to that point of that personal engagement, that personal commitment to the Lord. When uh, Paul writes his testimony, when he writes to the Galatian church, Galatians 2.20, he expresses his testimony in this way. I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Paul Lacey was writing to Christians. In a sense, he could have written, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved us. Because we've all experienced the love of Christ if we're in Christ tonight. We're all, we've all experienced that for ourselves. And we've all experienced what it means that Christ gave himself for us. But Paul says, no, there's something more wonderful than this. The coming to faith is coming into that personal relationship where if he didn't die for anybody else, he died for me. If he didn't love anybody else, he loved me. And this is the testimony of faith. You know, we could have sung some hymns tonight that express that same truth. Dear Saviour, thou art mine, how sweet the thought to me. Let me repeat thy name and lift my heart to thee. Mine, 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 I know thou art mine. Saviour, dear Saviour, I know thou art mine. Is that your testimony tonight? That was Ruth's testimony. Your God shall be my God. Or there's another one. Uh, my Jesus, my Saviour. Uh, Lord, there is none like you. All of my days I want to praise the wonders of your mighty love. My comfort, my shelter, my tower of refuge and strength. Let every breath, all that I am, never cease to worship you. There's that point of personal engagement, personal commitment to the Lord. She's saying, I've not come simply to a set of doctrines, things I believe to be true. I've not come for the benefits of the gospel. No, she says, I've come because I want to know salvation through the Lord alone. She makes her stand with, if you like, the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy. Remember that famous verse 2 Timothy 1.12? Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. You know, many people say, I know what I believe. And that's a distinction in the world today. Oh yeah, I know what I believe. And people outside the church today will tell you all the things that they believe. But the Christians don't talk about what I believe. The Christian says, I know whom I have believed. And so Ruth says, your God should be my God. I know whom I believe. Now, let me ask you tonight. If you come to that place where you've had that same experience, if you've known the Lord speaking to you personally, you know what it is to respond to the gospel message and saying, God has spoken to my heart as if nobody else was there tonight. God was speaking to me and he was calling me to turn to respond to him. Well, that's what Ruth says. Your God is now my God. I'm now part of turning my back on the old, my old gods. I'm now turned to trust the living and the true God. But you notice she doesn't stop there because she says two things about the focus of her faith. Yes, your God should be my God, but also your people should be my people. And what Ruth opens up to here is something that I think is very relevant and important in the days in which we live. She talks here about what it means to become part, when we come to faith, of being part of the family of God. She's speaking here of her adoption into a new family. Once I was part of the kingdom of Moab, now I'm becoming part of the kingdom of Judah, God's people. 
Once I was part of a family there, I'm turning my back on that family and I'm being embraced by a new family. Your people will be my people. Now you see, this is good gospel teaching. This is exactly what Jesus himself taught. You might remember that occasion when uh, Jesus was teaching in a house and uh, the house was full as they were listening to him teach and um, messengers came in. And the message was this, uh, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now, uh, let's imagine that tonight. I haven't got a mother anymore, old brothers, but let's say my message came in, your sister's outside waiting for you. What would I do? I'd say, well, tell her to come in. Uh, I, I wouldn't dare upset my sister. Uh, you know, welcome her, come in, come and, come and join us. What does Jesus do? Well, he shocks them. Who is my mother? Or my brothers, he says. This was quite astounding. It's your mother and your brothers. Who is my mother and my brothers? You see, Jesus is wanting to make a point here. And, he, and, and uh, we find that Mark tells us he looked around the circle at those sat about him and he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And then he explained that. How were these people who were not his blood relatives, his mother and his brothers? Well, he says this. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. What was he saying? He was saying this, that when you come to faith, when you come to trust Christ as your saviour, you're brought into a whole new realm of relationships. And those relationships are stronger than even the family relationships. There's a greater depth and quality of the relationships amongst God's people than you even find within your own family. Now, I don't know about you, but um, we, like many churches, struggle to get people to commit themselves to become church members. People are happy to come along as attenders. Some of those people have come to faith. But taking the next step and becoming a member is quite difficult. And, uh, well, 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 why is that? Well, some people say, well, of course, the Bible doesn't teach anywhere about membership, but it describes it. Listen to what the dynamics were like in the New Testament church. Acts 2.44 Now, all who believed were together. Now, isn't that, doesn't that speak volumes? All who believed, not excluding the difficult and awkward ones, but all who believed were together. I see you have a segregation rule here. If you're young, you sit upstairs. If you're old, you sit downstairs. <laughs> Nonetheless, we're together, aren't we? We're part of a worshipping congregation. And that was part of the church life there. The whole church was together. There wasn't space for people outside of a church setting. No, they were together and they met together. And they expressed that in very practical ways. It was a real caring church. They had all things in common. They sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone who had needs. But how did they express that oneness? Well, listen to this. So, continuing daily with one accord in the temple. Now listen carefully to your announcements tonight. Because sometimes in the summer things shut down. But if your secretary has said tonight, well tomorrow we've got our missionary prayer meeting, and on Wednesday we're going to have an extra Bible study. Uh, sorry, on Tuesday we have extra Bible study. On Wednesday, of course, we're going to have the powerhouse again, we're going to have the main prayer meeting on Wednesday, and then Thursday we're going to come back in and we're going to pray again. 
And on Friday we're going to have a Bible study and a prayer meeting. And Saturday night we're going to come again. How many would turn up? No hands go up. <laughs> we see, this is what was happening in the New Testament church. They so valued being together. They so valued their relationship. They said it's so amazing to enjoy real fellowship with, the, with each other, to be part of this amazing people of God. We want to be together as often as we can. It's also a danger you accept people, upset people the first time you come to a church because I don't know your circumstances. So I'm not having a go at anybody. But there's an increase in once-a-weekers. People will say, one service a week is plenty for me. You know, the issue should be this. If the church is meeting, I want to be there. Because the New Testament church met every day. And you notice that the, the, the Acts goes on. And what did they do? They broke bread from house to house. So if there's not a meeting on Thursday, all go around to the secretary's house because he'd like you to go for a meal. That's what they did. Better get some more food, I think. That's what they did. They got together. They said, we need to be together because this is what it means to be the people of God. And Ruth is saying, this is my faith. I come to faith now when I know the true and living God through the Saviour. And that's a great thing to say, my God. But I've also got my people. And my people are better than my old people. She's put her old people behind her. She's now entered into this new relationship. And you know, I just wonder, we're not the next sentence in that passage in Acts is relevant. Because it says, and the Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Was it because the church was active? Was it because people could see they loved being together? Was it because when they were together they showed their love for the Lord? They showed that they'd had that happy day experience and it was now real and it was ongoing, it wasn't just historic. And is it because of that the church had such an impact on the community in which they lived? The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Now you might say, well, look, just be careful because uh, you're arguing from the Old Testament here. Uh, this was Ruth's Old Testament confession about uh, these people being her people. Well, it's the New Testament as well. Listen to how uh, Peter describes the church in the New Testament. He's writing not just to one church, but a number of churches, dispersed church, and he says this, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, you are a holy nation. You are his own special people that you may proclaim the praise of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. How do we know he's not talking about one people? Well, he goes on. Who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had obtained mercy, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You see, Peter says, this is a New Testament truth too. You know, you should value being part of the family at the Heath. Should value being part of the same family that the Heath is part of and his little mill is part of. Says you can't get two bigger opposites than that. A big church and a small church, but we're part of the same family. I came here tonight terrified. I'm used to preaching to 30 people. Coming to a church like this where the last person I'd preached was Dr. Martin Lowe Jones. I came in all fear and trembling. But you know, why was that? This is a family, isn't it? God's family. And I knew that you'd put up with my ramblings and my, my, the, the difficulty I have in expressing myself sometimes because we're family. And we've come with a family gathering to meet together around God's Word to enjoy being family. 
So Ruth says, oh, this is my testimony. I once worshipped idols, but now I come to know the true and living God. He gave a saviour who opened up the way for me to come and to know him. And she looked forward by faith to Christ, and through Christ she came into that family. And she said, and now I've, I've left my own family behind, and I've got an even better family. I've got the people of God, and there's not a better family than that. Well, that's her focus of her faith. But then I, last night, I just want to talk about her commitment to faith. Because uh, that's the other thing we see in this passage, is about her commitment. We live in a bit of a consumer culture, don't we? We're all used to being customers. And, and we struggle a little more. We haven't got any shops a little more. So we can't be customers. We haven't got any shops to go to. But you've got lots of shops here, and you go to shops as customers. You go to social clubs as customers. Some people come to church as customers. That means you, you come for what you need, when you need it, with any commitments or investments. But that's not the, that's not the faith, you see. Ruth says, faith demands commitments. And let me show you the sort of commitment that Ruth is talking about here. She talks, first of all, about an unconditional commitment that continues regardless of circumstances. Verse 16. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Now, in January, uh, my wife and I will be celebrating our 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, please don't send cards. But, you know, I can still remember those promises I made. I've written them down in case I forget them. For better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness or in health. What did I promise 50 years ago? I said, I will love, with, I will love you. I commit myself to you, whatever happens. Isn't that what Ruth is saying here? For wherever you go, Naomi that bitter, twisted believer, wherever you go, I'm going to go. Wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Now think about that. We know Ruth had a mother because she's, she's told by Naomi to go back to her mother. Can you imagine Ruth going back home and saying, Mum, I've decided I'm going to move. And uh, Mum says, well, where are you going? Oh, I'm going back with Naomi. We're going back to Bethlehem. And her mum says, why? That woman's nothing but trouble. All she's had in her life is tragedy. And you're going to give up your own people here. You're going to give up everything that's familiar and you're going to turn your back on these things and go with her with a very uncertain future. Everything looks bleak and promises, and you're going with her. You see, at this point, Ruth had had no personal experience of the blessing of God, rather the opposite. But she said, I'm going to commit myself that my faith is so real that wherever the Lord takes me, I will go. Now maybe, we don't know, but uh, maybe she'd by now from her husband had learned some of the Old Testament stories. She maybe had learned the story of Moses. And uh, maybe she was working out here some of the things that the book of Hebrews comments about Moses. Hebrews says about Moses, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked for the rewards. Maybe at this point Ruth was saying, even if it's a hard way, even if nothing's going to be easy about this walk of faith, that's where I want to go because I want to follow my Saviour. 
And if he's going to be with me, that's a better place to be than a place of ease and comfort. When we moved to Little Mill, been in a small community, it's very hard to have a day off. So uh, Joy decided a good ruse was that we join a golf club. So we've joined a golf club uh, nearby. It's a lovely course. It's really, really hard work. And uh, every time we try and hit the ball, it moves. So we, we really struggle hitting it. But we're members of the golf club. But if it rains, we don't go. If it's too hot, we don't go. If it's too cold, we don't go. So the last time we went was 18 months ago. <laughs> you see, we are fair-weather golfers. But today we have fair-weather Christians. Oh yes, I'll go along, but only if it suits me. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be part of the church, but only if I can fit it in around other things in my life. So when there's a request goes out for workers in the fellowship, who are the people who volunteer? Normally the busy ones. Who are the people who don't volunteer? They're people who are customers. But you see, what Ruth is saying here is, there's no space for being customer. Wherever you go, I will go. That's an unconditional commitment. Whatever God wants me to do, I will do for him. And you see, that's the standard today, isn't it? Not fair-weather Christians who take it or leave it. People who come along to a church while it meets your needs and then you don't get what you want so you move to another church and another church. That's being a customer. But the Lord looks for people who belong, people who are members, people who are committed to the work of God. Whenever you go, I will go, she says. It's also noticed an enduring commitment. Where you die, I will die. Another promise I made 50 years ago was till death us do part. wasn't until I'm fed up with you, or more to the point you're fed up with me. That wasn't, that wasn't the promise, was it? This was an enduring commitment. I'm going to marry you for the rest of my life. And that's the commitment. Well, says Ruth, this is my commitment of faith. This is not a flash in the pan thing. This is not a faith that's going to last while, I'm, while I've got some energy and some interest or I've got certain needs. No, she says, this is a faith I am committing myself to for the rest of my life. Where you die, I will die. Committed to the Lord and to his people to the end. You know, I, during my experience as a, as a Christian and latterly as a pastor, you sometimes people, people give up for all sorts of reasons. Some give up for hardship. Life's got hard. People give up. Sometimes people give up because of weariness. Oh, it's hard work being a Christian. And I really struggle with my personal devotions. I struggle to understand the sermon. I struggle to understand and enjoy fellowship. Some people give up because uh, they, they suddenly get plenty and life has lots of other interests and things. So they give up. They weaken on their, their commitment to the Lord. Some people give up because of a sense of injustice. You know, I don't know if it happens in a big church, but sometimes in a small church, you sometimes think, well, why don't they do it? Why is it always us that has to do it? You know, and you think, what about other people? And there's a sense of injustice, isn't there? But why should I keep on if they're not keeping on? Well, you see, the commitment we make is this. It's not a commitment to them. It's a commitment to the Lord. I'm committing myself to the end. 
Where you die, I will die. Sometimes people give up because of age. You've actually worked out now. That I became a Christian when I was 16, and that was 55 years ago. So if you're bright at maths, and I've got my sums right, I'm 71. Isn't it about time I retired? That's what my wife says to me every week. Isn't it about time you retired? You see, you don't retire from Christian service, do you? We are called to serve the Lord to the end. Now, it may be our energies reduce, our abilities reduce, and we have to reflect that, but our commitment to serving the Lord should stay to the end. You know, there's some lovely passages in the Scripture about how the Lord rewards those who stay to the end. Psalm uh, 71, verse 18. The psalmist prays this. Now also, when I am old and grey-headed, O God, do not forsake me. I used to have black hair. It's now grey. So I can identify with the psalmist. And why is he praying that? He says, listen, until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to everyone who is to come. So I'm glad as a 71-year-old to stand here tonight and to say to these young people, the Lord has been faithful to me for 55 years. And I want to tell you it's worth committing your life to Christ. It's worth going on with him. Because unless we tell the next generation, who will? And who will tell the generation after that? And who's best to do that but those who have been in faith many years? I can say for 55 years the Lord has been faithful. How long have some of you been Christians? A year or two? Well, I've been a Christian for a year. Listen, I've been a Christian 54 more years than that. So in a sense, here's a richer testament, isn't it? And this is something that older Christians can give. Psalm 92, the psalmist says this, they shall still bear fruit in old age. They shall be fresh and flourishing. Next time you have trouble getting out of bed in the morning because you're aching, remember the Bible says this, you're fresh and flourishing. You say, well, I don't feel fresh and flourishing yet, but the Bible tells you you are. Maybe not physically, but spiritually. And why are you fresh and flourishing? Well, says the psalmist, to declare your strength to this generation, sorry, to declare that the Lord is upright, he is my rock, and there is no unrighteousness in him. So, if you've been in the faith for many years, you can say to other people, listen, God's never been unfair. God's always been just in what he's done. He's always treated me well. He's always been gracious to me, and that's my abiding testimony. And I want you to know that same experience for yourself. See, there is no retirement for God's people. We always should have a testimony to give because we have an enduring commitment that continues to the end. And then you notice, and this is the end, that it was a a serious and solemn commitment. Because as Ruth makes a commitment, she says, the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts you and me. She took a vow. She said, this is such a serious thing I'm going to take a vow in the name of the Lord. We've done that, haven't we? Notice in that last hymn, the last verse of that hymn we sang on Happy Day says this, High heaven that heard that solemn vow, that vow renewed shall daily hear. What were we singing then? We were singing this truth. That the day we came to trust Jesus for our own salvation, that day we made a promise. It was a serious promise that we we are committed to. And because we made a vow there. And that vow, in a sense, is renewed every day. Every day we come and we pray and we read God's word. We're renewing our vow before him because that's the vow we've made.
In a minute, we're going to sing this hymn. Oh, Jesus, I have promised to serve you to the ends. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not be, fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. You see, a confession of faith is an amazing thing. You're saying, I now know the Lord is my God through my Saviour. I now know the people of God as my family. Family I'm committed to. Family I want to know to get better. I want to enjoy more and more. And I made a commitment that I'm going to stay in the way of the faith. Whatever happens in my life, wherever the Lord takes me, if it's through times when, times when I lie beside, beside still waters and green pastures, I will go there. If it's at times when he leads me through the valley of the shadow of death, I will go there because he has promised to be with me. His staff and his rod will comfort me. I'll go wherever he takes me. And I'm never going to give up. I'm going to be faithful to the end because my Saviour was faithful to the end for me. Well, where are you tonight? Can you make that confession of faith? Do you still tell people you had a happy day? Do you still tell people of what the Lord has done for you? You know, that should be our testimony. Sometimes you'll just say, what should we do for evangelism? Here's the answer. Christians give you a testimony. Tell people what things the Lord has done for you. Because that's one of the most powerful ways of bringing home the reality of gospel truth. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved.